Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. On this episode of Big Boys Don't Cry, we discuss the film God's Own Country. You don't have to have seen the film to enjoy the podcast as we talk about a bunch of other stuff, but it might help if you have seen the film because there are plot spoilers. So if you do proceed without having seen the film, just be aware that the plot of God's Own Country will be spoiled for you. Enjoy. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. It's uh, it's rare that we record in the morning, isn't it? Well, it's an occasional thing, but yeah. What time did you get up? So I was up at about eight o'clock because um, I normally wake up relatively early anyway. Um, so at the weekends, I um, I can't wake up like too late. Yeah. My natural body clock gets me up quite early. Yeah. We were um, woken up by a fire alarm. Yeah. Oh, no. And Yeah, it was going off. And like, we're not sure if it's just that like someone else in our building has burnt some toast or something, if they're all interconnected or whatever. But I was having a dream where I was <laughs> I was being interviewed for the job of like doing digital marketing for the Chicago Cubs <laughs> for some reason. Oh, right. And, okay. then, <laughs> and then suddenly in the middle of it, I immediately like was woken up really abruptly by this alarm. But I still didn't get out of bed. And Claire was yelling at me, going, come on, it's a fire alarm, you've got to get out, you could die. And I'm just like, oh, whatever. I want to be Chicago Cubs media man. <laughs> Let me dream. Yeah, stop taking my dreams away from me. <laughs> <laughs> and then the alarm turned itself off after about 30 seconds, But by which oh, time okay. you're already up and awake. But at least it was like 8am, so if it was, you know, 5 or 6am on a Sunday, I'd have been, I'd have been livid, but... Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess they must all be interconnected. Unless, I I assume so. Yeah. Unless in your that, dream you were also um, cooking toast or something. Maybe you know I've decided to bring just plain old toast to the good people of America because they don't seem to do toast. They just have like French toast. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um... Yeah, you never you never hear them talking about a good old piece of toast and marmalade, do you? No, you do not. Although I, I'm not a fan of marmalade, I think we might have discussed this already. Are you a fan of marmalade? I am a relative fan of marmalade. Um, yeah, on a scale of one to Paddington, stuff. I'd give myself a six. It, I I feel of marmalade in the same way that I feel of um, marmite, where I'll have it every so often and be like, oh yeah, that was nice, but I don't need to have it constantly. Yeah, I feel exactly that way about Marmite. And I think the whole you either love it or hate it thing is just obviously complete bollocks, isn't it? It's just marketing nonsense. Yeah, fake news. Fake Marmite news. (laughs) Fake Marmite news, yeah. So I don't, because of that, I I don't inherently trust Marmite. You know, it has to to work to earn my approval. Oh, right, okay. You're like, "Mm, I don't, you've got an evil marketing uh plan behind you so i'm not entirely sure about your intentions yeah exactly although i'm sure that's the same of pretty much any spread spread brand 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting that they go down the you love it or hate it route. I wonder where that originated from, whether there was this... Because, I mean, we're talking... Marmite's a very old brand, and as we know, people from the olden days were stupid. <laughs> and so maybe maybe the most important thing in their lives was whether they liked or disliked Marmite. Whereas in reality, it's just like, yeah, it's all right. Maybe back then, there were so few flavours, like so few interesting flavours in England, that they were like... This is either the best or worst thing in the world. <laughs> this is true. I mean, there just wasn't as much going on back in the day, was there? You know, they've had this slogan as long as I can remember. So at least since the nineties, probably before. I don't know when they actually came up with it, but they must have, yeah, just thought, you know, everyone's going to be into this because everyone watches TV because there's nothing else to do. So it was kind of easier back then, I guess. These days, the kids, they're too jaded, you know, with the, with their Snapchats and their Twitches and their... What's that site where you ask people anonymous questions that seems to be popular with the kids? I can't remember. Uh, oh, an old man. Curious Cat? That's the one that, like, creators use. But then there's other ones, isn't there? Ask FM. Yeah, no, it's, some, it's, it's something like else. It's like a version of Ask FM, but for the pale haircuts of YouTube. Yeah, Curious Cat, it's called. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, back in my day, all we had was a stick. And that <laughs> stick was everything to a young man. You didn't even um, get the hoop. I had the no, hoop and it was, the stick. No, it was literally a stick that had fallen from a tree. And, you know, you had your haughty-taughty people who were like, oh, yeah, I've got a hoop, or I've got a stick and a rock. But to be a true salt of the earth young lad you just had your stick and you were happy with it yeah and then you had marmite you had no bread for your marmite you just had a jar of marmite that you would dip your finger into and that <laughs> was the no, only sustenance you had for winters if you were if you were posh enough you'd have a separate stick for the marmite so you'd get your big jar of marmite and then you'd have like a polished stick that you could dig into the marmite jar and then lick the lick the marmite off the stick yeah and then you'd have a different stick for for playing outside and hitting people with christmas dinner was just marmite molded into the shape of a turkey <laughs> hey at least that's like a good vegetarian alternative is marmite vegetarian marmite's vegetarian or... isn't it it's yeast extract yeah yeah it's not it doesn't come from the beast with the yeast yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> The yeast beast. It's kind of like a yeti, like a yeti but it lives yeast in the Yorkshire beast. Dales. All right, I'm looking up the the marmite marketing history here. So initially, it was emphasised as being a healthy product. Oh, the growing up spread you never grow out of. Uh, okay, that that's a much better slogan. Mm. Actually, that's catchy. A small quantity added to the daily diet will ensure you and your family are taking uh, sufficient vitamin B to keep nerves, brain, and digestion in proper working order. Hmm. Um, During the 1980s, it was then My Mate Marmite was the slogan. But then, in the 1990s, Love It or Hate It became a thing. A campaign started in October 1996. Oh, okay. So I was so, basically right so about it's, the it's, timing. It's actually the fault of the Gen Xers then. Oh, those fucking Gen it's, Xers, honestly. Like With their the ability grun- to dick around for 12 to 15 years of their life and still buy a house. <laughs> the grunge era was over. Um, 
and Britpop was still going. But in the middle of it all, there was something missing. And that something missing was forming divides amongst our nation over loving or hating a yeast extract product that you put on toast. Yeah. It's like, you know, is it Blur, Blur versus Oasis pales in comparison to whether you love or hate Marmite? Yeah. It was the Brexit of the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, definitely. If anything, that's probably worse than Brexit. Yeah, I mean, it was vicious. I, I remember, it, remember a tough, it as a young boy. But, a tough um, time. There was, def- there was definite houses being firebombed if they didn't like Marmite. <laughs> you know how, like, our grandparents and older generations, they grew up with the war and rationing and stuff, and they remember that as being a tough time. Our equivalent is whether you loved or hated Marmite. The Marmite yeah. Wars. And when we have children and grandchildren, we'll be able to go to them, hey, they'll, they'll come to us and be like, hey, grandpappy, what did you do in the, the Marmite Wars? <laughs> they'll be digging through the loft of the house and they'll find an old little box and inside there'll be an old jar of Marmite and they'll be like, grandpapa, what is this? And be like, oh, that takes me back to my youth. Those <laughs> dangerous days of yeast or no yeast. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, these days, everyone's accepting of everyone's views in relation to Marmite, but it wasn't always so, you know. We no, had to have the was... Marmite referendum. Yeah, the Marmite referendum. They threw out into different counties of the UK were formed based solely on Marmite love or hate. Why do you think East and West Sussex is a thing instead of yeah. just Sussex? It's entirely down to Marmite. This West is why Sussex Middlesex no longer exists. Yeah. Because they were the people who were in the middle ground, and they're like, that cannot exist. That does not fit our political narrative around Marmite. Yeah. They tried to change the name of it to Marmite Sex for a while, but it was taken yeah. the wrong way. Yeah, there was, that, that was the other people. The people who loved Marmite too much started moving into middle sex after that. Just um, a little bit too much. Yeah. So yeah, um, don't go to Twickenham. <laughs> You'll see lots of people in fucking jars of Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you people still put middlesex on addresses quite a lot but it's yeah. not been a county for some number of decades but you actually don't need to put the county on i think i think everyone knows this really but as long as you've got the street name and the postcode it'll get there yeah that's all they need is um street name postcode that's that's all so yeah, yeah you don't need to put middlesex down anymore people yeah we get it you like marmite okay just yeah, just move on. They <laughs> love Marmite. Get over it. <laughs> yeah, you lost. Get over it. Yeah. Good times. Where where does Marmite... Where is it, it is a, a British thing, isn't it, Marmite? Because you've got Vegemite in Australia. Yeah, the I bo- think it's... Bovril. Yeah, I think it was, in, it was British. The product that was to become Marmite was invented in the late 19th century when German scientist Justus von Liebig discovered that brewer's yeast could be concentrated, bottled and eaten. But then in 1902, the Marmite food extract company was formed in Burton-upon-Trent. Oh, okay. So when, when you describe it as being concentrated, bottled and eaten, that sounds quite grim, doesn't it? Yeah. Hey, we've got this runoff of beer <laughs> that smells quite pungent. Let's re- let's try and concentrate this down, and then some idiots will eat it. It sounds like the work of a mad scientist. Yeah, <laughs> this is the precursor <laughs> to the human centipede. Yeah, I was thinking of that actually. It's the <laughs> sa- the same kind of twisted genius. Ah, it, by 1912, the discovery of vitamins was a boost for marmite. So, I didn't realize vitamins weren't 
discovered until 1912. Yeah, there weren't any vitamins until then. Everyone was just dying of vitamin deficiency. <laughs> everybody had rickets. Just everybody in the world. Um, oh, okay, well, there we go. That is our welcome to the Marmite cast. <laughs> yeah, this <laughs> is our new hosts. thing. Marmite podcast. You either love it or hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly hate it, I think. Do you remember okay, last last thing on Marmite? Do you remember in the um, in the nineties and the, the Marmite adverts? The the soundtrack was the um, the song uh, Lowrider. Low, Low Rider, yeah. yeah. And um, the one that goes it's on um, a friend of the podcast, Tracy Dunham, gifted me a CD for Christmas of Guy Fieri's Road Songs That Rock. Have I told you about oh, this yeah. already? No, it's no. A, it's amazing. It's all full of like Sammy Hagar and stuff and like Fog Hat and all these like hilarious old 70s and 80s rock bands. But um Lowrider is track 9 on there for some reason. And sometimes I'm like it's in the car and every time we now go on a car journey I always put it on just to like troll my wife. <laughs> and like <laughs> I always skip to track 9 and like it takes a while to build. It starts with the cowbell like going because it's it's by War, isn't it? The funk band. Yeah, War, it is. Yeah, um, who are super? They're awesome. Like they're a really good band. Um, yeah. But then their 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 best song is like mainly remembered in the UK as the Marmite song, which I definitely think is really, really depressing. <laughs> like that is the uh, is the Marmite song. No way around it. And whenever you hear it, you like, um, yeah, you just think of Marmite. But I always put it on, and she never she still never realizes that it's the Marmite song until the. The, the horn kicks in so you've got about a minute of just like <laughs> of just cowbell and bass and bass line going it's a really great bass line and then suddenly the suddenly the like the horn kicks in and she's like can we turn this off now <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's it's really sad because imagine if like george clinton was best known for his music being involved in like a sunpat advert Wait, was he? <laughs> say, was he? Was he in war? No, no, that, no. He was. In, there's he a was similar parliament band and, to Parliament. Yeah. Parliament and Funkadelic. So I'm just thinking of like the big names of funk music. I'm just yeah. like, oh, it's such a shame because because like funk, I think, is a genre that nowadays is underappreciated. Definitely. For like, for like how revolutionary it was, how interesting it was. Um, it's kind of like being forgotten about in favor of like punk has still maintained a level of sort of belief in it even though everyone who was one of the core like punk musicians at the time has become a massive sellout yeah um that's actually quite a good through line from that through to johnny rotten and his advertising of butter isn't it Oh, there we go yeah <laughs> it's all about spreads it is that that's where the money is clearly everything comes back to spreads <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Um, so yes, uh, we have we have somehow managed to deviate very very far from movies. Well, um, where does spreads where does butter come from? Cows. And there were a lot of cows in this week's film. There were. There were. Um, so this week's film was God's Own Country, um, which I'd seen a lot of trailers for, um, but I'd never got around to seeing when it was out of the cinemas. Um, and it was really nice to actually watch it. Did you enjoy it, Paddy? I did. Yeah, it was. Um, it was great. Actually, I thought it was a really, really well done film, expertly put together, really, really well shot. Aesthetically, so much to love about it. But I don't know that I will be watching it again anytime soon, just because it was incredibly bleak and and very slow, 
and very arresting and quite yeah quite sort of quietly yeah quietly downbeat but it had a happy ending so that was good yeah i i completely agree with you it's one of those films where it's a really powerful film um and you really are captivated by it you're really involved in the characters and the story and the world um and then it's over and you're like wow that was amazing let's never watch that film again um <laughs> Like, and, I didn't feel like I had to say let's never watch it again like some other other films. So I'm trying to think of similar ones where I've been like, wow, that was good, but it was so bleak that I don't want to watch it again. I wouldn't rule out watching this again, just maybe no, not no, for a I'd while. I'd watch it again, but I, I'd not be fussed about watching it for a while. Um, there's yeah. some movies where you watch them and you're immediately like, let's rewatch that. Yeah. Um, and, and you end up sort of like watching it like a month later and being like, oh yeah, that's still good. Yeah. Um or or movies like Robocop which deserve a daily watch. <laughs> yeah. Or The um, Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> oh, of course, Bridges of Madison County. I I wake up in the morning and I watch a little bit of it each morning before I go to work. I haven't watched it today yet. I've been bad. <laughs> Usually I try and get it out of the way in the morning. No, I've got but... it on as we're talking. I've got oh, one you? earphone in with it on <laughs> and the second screen set up with Bridges of Madison County. Maybe maybe I should do that. They're looking at the bridge that. now. I'm captivated. Yeah. It's <laughs> Is it a good bridge? It's a very good bridge. It's, it's It gets better with each watch. You notice little different things about the bridge each time. That, oh, yeah. And that's the level of um, storytelling we have. That's how good the film is, that even after 50 watches, you're like, oh, that little bit of the bridge is slightly different. <laughs> There's always more to finding Clint Eastwood's face. <laughs> it's like looking at one of those magic images. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I thought... God's Own Country was very, very good and very strong. It's one of those films where there's very, very little dialogue and it's very, very conscious about trying to tell the story just through images and imagery and only using dialogue as very as sparingly as possible. And it's a deliberate decision that does work with the subject matter and the points it's trying to make about the protagonist's life. Um, whereas sometimes I guess people could try and do that and it could not work because you're like, actually, maybe they should, they like these people would be talking to each other, but there is so much left unsaid like about their family setup and his father's illness. So he's a young lad, John Saxby. He's, he looks like he's about 20 maybe. And he's, he lives with his dad and his nan and they run the farm. So obviously his mum took off. And his dad's not very well, so it's there's an interesting layer there in that the the nan is kind of having to look after two people younger than her who are not really as in as good health in different ways. So there's a bit of that. That's a, a lot of unspoken stuff there. And John's kind of he's kind of angry. He's a young a young angry man who doesn't know how to express himself. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's definitely accurate. And a lot of that expression also it comes down to being unable to express his sexuality in a way that he finds satisfying as well yeah um which i think is like one of the core um one of the core themes of the movie is that level of expression um where it's an it's a very isolated location um where i don't think it specifically says where they are does it no it's, it's outside of bradford um on a far, in like a farming village effectively um and um yeah because they talk it's... about going for a night out in bradford or yes, something yeah um so clearly that's like the, the the biggest nearby city 
um and um and yeah it's and so there's it's a very small community um with no real means of getting out unless you have um the academic credentials to leave and so there's what's really interesting about this film is that i was it kind of reminded me thematically of my beautiful laundrette yeah um yeah, film where, that we um studied yeah together at university it, it it ties together um the ideas of race sexuality and class very very well uh, and and my beautiful laundrette and god's own country both do that and those are both like in both films those are the core discussion points to be had about class about race and nationality and about sexuality and how culture can suppress all three or entrench all three um and it was really interesting the way that it did it in such a microcosm in such a tiny specific location as a yorkshire farm um that is really quite fascinating yeah it could end up being just incredibly boring like the slow the slow pace and the kind of just here's an image of of someone milking a cow here's an image of someone birthing a cow okay fine now here are some hills now here's a very very arresting image of him going to sell the cow now here's an image of him having sex with a young guy in the back of the truck and then following it through with the guy being like do you want to go get for a pint or something and he's just like no let's go and the way you it kind of jumps from image to image is still the timing of each one is perfect and i think that's where it gets it right and where it could have really fallen down and ended up being boring as if it lingered too long on any one of those shots but it never did so it was really really well paced and well put together in that way even though it was very slow yeah i think i think you're right there where it it feels in the wrong hands this could have felt incredibly dour and slow yeah i mean as much as i love my main man richard linklater he would have made a pig's ear of this. Yeah, yeah, I agree definitely with that. Um, I mean, we we love a bit of Link later, but this kind of film needed a deft touch and a darker touch, I think, than Link later yeah. can provide. Um, and it works incredibly well. And like, it it, it is a very it's a sparse movie. It's 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 yeah empty it's there's a void there that's filled with imagery and theme um and it could have gone very wrong um but it doesn't and it's it's down to the direction down to how delicately the symbolism is um is utilized as well i think is a really important factor of it because um, there is so, a lot of symbolism in it as well. Yeah, there's some like there's loads of imagery and symbolism around birth and life, and anim- especially with the animals. Like they, they really go to great lengths to show you real images of him putting his hand up a cow's bum and you know birthing calves and or cutting animals up and all those kind of elements of farming that are quite gruesome. Nothing, no images ever shied away from in this film. Nothing is euphemized but it's not gratuitous at all either. So some of those images did me go, make me go, oh, blimey, bloody hell, okay. Like, but then it, it's there to deliberately make you think about how he's got this, this kind of familial parental element where he's looking after the animals, but he doesn't necessarily have that with his home life, and it's about how he feel, perhaps feels trapped by that. And there's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and it did that quite well. But yeah, some of the Im- images did make me go, oh, okay. 
Yeah, it's it's almost like the anti-mother. So we've talked about mother before on this podcast, and you've not seen it. Mother! But mother, um, mother. But there, everything is ridiculously on the nose. All of the symbolism, just like this is what I'm doing. Have a look at this crazy stuff. Um, hey, look, we've got a baby and it's been killed, and now they're ripping it apart and eating it. And you're like, okay. Um, <laughs> whereas, like this, feels just as um, just as brutal, I suppose, but in a much more real fashion. And it has much greater impact because there's a subtlety behind it. Even when it's at its most graphic, um, there's subtlety there. And if you're going to make a movie that relies heavily on symbolism, you need that deft touch, which it really has. And for a debut feature, I think it's an absolutely outstanding achievement. Yeah, it's an an incredible achievement for a debut. Really amazing. But yeah, the the reason it yeah it differs from the, it's so far removed from the kind of filmmaking of Darren Aronofsky, even though they're aiming for symbolism of perhaps almost the same things as you say. But yeah, you, there are bits of it like with the, the long farming scenes. If you just cut out the farming scenes, put them all together, you'd probably get to about twenty minutes. And if you just put some like nice tinkly music and some subtitles, you could actually make a decent farming documentary out of it as well. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, alternatively, you could also like it's it, you could you could make it into a very different movie if you just put like the Archer's theme over the top. <laughs> yeah. Watching two uh, men have sex while Oh, it's it's a sexy tune, isn't it? There's no way around that. It is. I mean, like I I have like a a, a 50 uh BPM drop version that i edited with some saxophone that you know when i when i need to get in the mood and be seductive and just like (laughs) have you um it was on adam and joe years ago have you heard the thing that one they they took an episode of the archers and edited it so it was edited it so it was just all of the size <laughs> I've not heard that, but that is amazing. Uh, I'll send you the link as soon as we're done. It's brilliant. It's about just about a minute and a half of just ah, because they're talking about how like <laughs> the archers is... mostly consists of people walking into rooms and sighing. There is an awful lot of sighing in the archers. Um, I, I, my parents used to listen to it all the time, so I used to, particularly on Sundays, the omnibus of all of the week's episodes would be on. And uh, yeah, so I had lots of knowledge about the not very much goings on of the archers. In because Ambridge. not very much, not very much happens in Ambridge, does it? It's, no. Which kind of separates it out from today's soaps, where like, you know, there'll be a murder like at least twice a year. Um, Ross Kemp like... is always angry about something. <laughs> Although he, when does he still do soaps? I have no idea. Because <laughs> I, I don't think he, I think he left in like the 90s in the EastEnders. I mean, like EastEnders is kind of like, you always come back to EastEnders, even when you leave, unless they specifically kill your character off in such a way that there's no chance of it being a fake death. Yeah. Um, but I feel like they always leave the door open, though. Like anyone could come back from the dead and you'd just be like, all right, whatever. <laughs> yes, yeah, like I thought you were dead. I was. Yeah. I was. The things I've seen, man. Because, uh, what's that? I think that that's a line from Futurama, isn't it? From the All My Circuits, the uh, <laughs> the robot soap opera. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. I mean, I 
that that's one of those shows where you often get those shows within shows that you wish were real. Um, and I'd like legitimately watch all my circuits. Yeah. Um, that that's a really really well observed parody of American soaps. Much like I'd really I'd watch like the Mr. Peanut Butter Show or Horsing Around from BoJack Horseman. <laughs> Horsing Around? Didn't that... they make like the Horsing Around Christmas special? Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah. They made like a one-off as a Christmas special. Um, but That's I'd, a smart I'd, move. I totally watch that. It'd be amazing. Yeah, and we could we should do like a whole episode on shows within shows. Yeah, also um, the I buy that for a dollar guy from RoboCop. <laughs> Yeah. That show definitely look, didn't look like a piece of trash. <laughs> yeah, or the kind of thing that, like, as you say, would be on the on in the background in Twin Peaks. Yeah, like the, yeah. Like the room, like the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Um, but yeah, no. So getting back to God's Own Country, um, the other thing that really worked very well was the performances, um, and there's very few major roles in god's own country it's effectively the family um georgie the um the guy who comes to work on the farm um and then just a couple of minor minor people that turn up for like one sole purpose effectively um yeah but it works incredibly well because you don't need that variety of cast because it's very much that kind of insular look at um the emptiness of british rural life as well um so it it works incredibly well with a very small cast too yeah sure there's no need for there to be more than a couple of characters because it's the story of his relationship with georgi and there's nothing there's nothing more to say really i mean the the dad and the nan are there to provide really just extra elements of um forces that are in the way of his romance with georgi by by way of just providing you know sadness and an- anchoring him to you know their their pain and their struggles are his struggles so they're just there to get in the way of the romance really aren't they and the same with the the young lad who he has sex with at the beginning and then at the end towards the end which is the kind of crunch point he also has sex with him again in the pub toilet but you don't even really see it that time around you just see like Georgi comes in and you just see the door moving and like he looks under and you just see the shoes on the floor and that's really powerful as well because but at the same time when you do what when it does want to get across the um the nature of their sexual relationship it will show you things very very openly as well um especially it's really really striking the first time that him and Georgi have sex or they they've basically the two of them have gone off for like about a week um, down to the far end of the far their farmland, I assume, to rebuild a wall and to look after some lambs and some other stuff. And they're like camping out there, and they hate each other at first. And John's like calls him a jippo and he's racist and yeah, he's horrible and stuff. And they kind of eventually end up having sex. And there's the the tension between them is really really palpable. But the first time they do it, they do they show it in enough, like I say, enough graphic detail that you you really believe it. And that it's really, it's really very visceral, but it's not gratuitous, and that's that it knows when to show you those things and when not to. It's really, it really does that very well. Yeah, it does. It does it incredibly well. Um, in God's Own Country, in the the, the second sex scene in the pub, I didn't realize that was the same person. I thought it was a different person. That maybe had, it. That maybe it was. I thought I felt like it was the same person. I'm. I'm going to check. 
um because i thought it my reading of it and it might have been that i just got the wrong end of the stick that it was like um his friend who went off to university's friend from from uh from her studies uh, uh right that she alluded that she alluded to you're probably right um but it's still sort of like it's all handled incredibly sensitively even even though it is often graphic at times um though the the sexual elements of the film um and one thing that i found quite refreshing was that um the sort of the homophobia of this movie is not blatant i guess is the best way to describe it um there's no one that seems particularly unaccepting of um his sexuality out in the open um, no which which i think is is a quite interesting way to look at it and look at how homophobia has kind of changed in britain over the last 10 to 20 years um in that there is still very aggressive homophobia um as seen by recent comments by daily mail toad richard littlejohn oh god um who's a who's a absolute idiot um and sort of like the comments defending him have often been incredibly homophobic in the traditional sense um whereas i think in general there's much more acceptance of homosexuality and same-sex relationships um but there's still that underlying tension about revealing sexuality um yeah so so in this film um there's sort of like that underlying potential concern over it um but a lot of it seems to come also from a jingoistic perspective as well i suppose is the best way to describe it so so where there's genuine aggression and genuine tension it often seems to come from georgie's nationality rather than potential sexuality Um, yeah definitely i what i found really interesting as well is that i thought that maybe they were going to deal with his sexuality more and there was going it was going to form a point around his relationship with his dad and the nan and that they were going to find out about his sexuality and that that was going to be a problem but i think that's me coming at it from a straight perspective and expecting that as um that if a if a character in a film is gay it has to be like a huge plot point and actually it doesn't really like it it is it is an important po- element of the film because it forms how it's about how their romance forms and what they bond over and the viscerality of their of them having sex and the way that he has sex with the other kid behind closed doors in the the pub bathroom and stuff like that all of those are important elements of it but it didn't need to make a huge deal out of it and i liked that it didn't yeah because all too often in these kind of films um it's it's then the the father or the grandfather or the mother or the grandmother not accepting the sexuality and um being like you're never separate in this house ever again um and it's nice to see them looking at sexuality and homophobia from a perspective that isn't this person as an individual is a monster because not, that's not the way that homophobia works much and much as it's not the way that racism works uh that transphobia works um it's not individual people are monsters and they are monsters on their own all of these issues are caused by societal concerns that have been entrenched for generations upon generations 
Yeah. Um, and so it's nice to see that it didn't make a villain out of any individual person over race or over sexuality or over class in this film. All of it, all of the tensions are underlying because in society they're underlying. Yeah, it's it certainly didn't make a monster out of anyone. No one person was necessarily the antagonist. But I felt like, yeah, a, a less mature filmmaker would easily have just just would have made it. Okay, he's in love with the Romanian guy who's come to work at the farm. Uh, the the rest of their society around them doesn't want this to happen because they're homophobic. That's the obstacle they have to overcome that and run away together or something, which I think would have still been an okay film. But it's actually much more powerful for the to do what this film did and to, to for the obstacles to just be a sort of a combination of circumstances that make a philosophical point about the bleakness of rural English life rather than anything else, rather than the sexuality being the thing that drives the antagonism. Yeah, exactly. Because the, the, the way that I feel that sort of like homophobia works in this film is that it's that additional barrier behind every single difficult step that they have to take. Um, so it makes it more difficult for them to express their relationship to other people, which in turn creates greater tensions when things aren't going well on the farm, which in turn forces um, forces that additional sexual encounter to happen because he's insecure about his own nature and about the way that he can commit to another human being. And so it all ties back to that that sort of like feeling behind the scenes much in the same way that it does with the race aspect of it um and it's yeah it's really really well done because i think that the prime example of a movie that does race poorly is is oscar winning film crash um the one with all the different plots that don't quite link up together yes the yeah. slightly more serious trying to be trying to make a point version of a gary marshall comedy yeah um which it every single the issue with that film is that like the characters within it they all have their own reasons for being racist um and like there's a there's like a historical reason for each person's racism and things like that and so it makes monsters of them all whereas in reality that's not how racism works it's not like like I don't know, uh, when I was a teenager, the girl I fancy went out with a black guy, and so now I'm racist against black people. I can't remember the specific reasons why there's racism in Crash. It's been a very long time since I've saw, seen it, and I have no particular interest in watching it again. Yeah, I um, haven't seen it since it came out. And um, it's, yeah, and, and so it has all of these reasons behind it, but like that's not, like that's not why people are racist, you know? And and it's like, that's not why people are homophobic and that's not why people are sexist. Um, and that's something that, that God's Own Country did so well and it felt so real because of it. Yeah. It's like, why the first time that Georgi arrives and they're, they're talking about him being from Romania and he's like, oh, so you're... Oh, no, at first he says, are you half packy or something? And he's like, What? It's like as if it goes straight to Packy because it's the only English like racist insult that he can think of. Really, he knows that he, Georgi's different, but doesn't really understand it. And then when he's Romanian, he starts calling him a gypo until eventually Georgi pushes him over and says, "Don't do it." After enough times, but it makes you think. You know why? Why is he using these horrible racial slurs? And it's it's because you know he doesn't necessarily know any better, and it's just what he's experienced for the culture of 
British isolationism. Yeah, and and it it sort of it feels very much like because I I know well and good that you hear those kind of terms being thrown around, particularly Jippo. Yeah, um, and it's, it's really nasty. Of, which is a yeah, it's horrible, and they're like catch-all terms for anybody, effectively. Um, and and it does happen, and those terms are used um, by people that should know better, that by people that are lazy about the ways that they wish to hurt people, which is kind of what's going on in this film as well. Um, and yeah, so it it yeah it, it it handles the subject matter with the correct level of brutality for what it is i think is the best way to put it yeah definitely but it's never the point about his racism prejudice is never labored either and after they they have that conversation he is obviously just completely over it which is a good way to portray as you say that the cultural misunderstanding that leads to it i guess yeah yeah definitely and you're right to use the word brutal there, because that's a word I, that definitely I did occur to me at a number of times, especially when it just shows stuff in really obvious detail. Like after his dad, I think, does he have a stroke? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's ever explained what causes the strokes in the in the first place, but there's something. Um, yeah, he's 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 had he's had a stroke before, and then he has another one halfway through the film. Um. And then and there's a scene where he's of, like bathing his dad and yeah. it's very like he's trying to get him in and out of the tub and he can't move and stuff that I found that really brutal as well. Like anything that was like wrong or a problem problem was never skirted around. And the same with the, the gruesomeness of dealing with the animals and the farming as well. There's definitely a certain brutality to it that got the point across about, you know, yeah, as we say, the bleakness of rural English life in this day and age. Yeah, and because uh, there is the... It it makes really good points about um, the the state of farming in the UK as well. I think, which is that it's unbelievably difficult, particularly if you're a small family farm. It's unbelievably hard to compete um, in Britain in agriculture, um, and and part of it is because of um, like cheap produce being available in supermarkets and things like that, which are undercutting all the prices it's incredibly hard to maintain that kind of life. Um, and sort of like you see the other side of it at the end where Georgie's at the, um, the, at Scottish, the, Scottish, potato the Scottish potato farm. Yeah, the, the massive uh, industrial complex, effectively. Um, the, the potato industrial complex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we should be having sweet potatoes by now, but the potato industrial complex is keeping sweet potatoes down. Yeah, a, thanks, a, Mr. Potato Head. Yeah. <laughs> What's the name of the posh potato man that's on crisps? What's he called? The posh potato... Gary Lineker. <laughs> no, what's he called? <laughs> it's like a little... Um, he's like a little uh, mascot. Oh, not Brannigan's. Brannigan's crisps. I don't, let's have a little look. So, Hasn't that so got can... like a monocled potato on it? Are you talking about a fictional master. character or a real person? I swear it's a fictional character. Okay, that's, that's like good. A marketing, I was worried. A marketing brand. No, I didn't think that there was genuinely like a Mr. Moneybags for <laughs> potatoes. <laughs> uh, what was he? I, I, can't, I, I can't find it, but we'll just go with the evil Pringles man then as an alternative. <laughs> the, the evil Pringles guy, yeah. yeah. He has a name, I think. Is it? 
bastard man. <laughs> the Pringles bastard. <laughs> the Pringles bastard. Right. That is his name. I'm looking at Brannigans. Oh no, Brannigans have they have a picture of a like a smiling butcher-looking guy in a butcher's hat and a mustache. Okay, that's that's good. That's appropriate. He seems okay. Brannigans smoked ham and pickle five pack two forty-five from BritishCornershop.co.uk. <laughs> Welcome to the Crisps Cast. <laughs> yeah, we have spent probably half this episode talking about all the crap we were eating in the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of crap we were eating in the nineties, do you remember hedgehog-flavored crisps? Was was this one of those Walkers like crazy crazy flavor campaign things? No, it was an individual company that made it. <laughs> so um, it was like a precursor to that. Yeah, you know, Cajun Squirrel and all that. Yeah, nonsense. so it was before all of that stuff from Walkers. It was like a little company that set them up uh, called Hedgehog Flavor oh. Crisps. Hedgehog's Food wow. Limited decided as a joke to introduce hedgehog flavored crisps, but they wow. were successful. Do you not remember these at all? I, I have no recollection of this whatsoever. I'm just looking at this now. I have never seen this in my life. That's quite cute packaging. It is, Hedgehog-flavoured yeah, crisps. It's very rustic. I have no... Yeah, I have no idea why they formed. But, yeah, they, they you were able to get hedgehog-flavoured crisps for a brief amount of time in the UK. Um, and I, 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 I remember eating them, but I can't remember what they tasted like. I think they basically tasted like beef-flavoured crisps. Fair enough. In essence. Um, Did you know that hedgehogs are lactose intolerant? Oh, really? So you're so actually not supposed to put milk out for them. It makes them ill. Don't give them cheese. If yeah. I see a hedgehog, don't be like, here you go, have a baby bell. Yeah. <laughs> as much as you want to get rid of all your baby bells. Also, <laughs> also a horrible thing we were eating as children in the 90s, probably. <laughs> see, what's funny is that, like, Britain, Britain is a country that kind of prides itself on its cheese. I think that's fair to say. Not Cheddar. to like, yeah, not not to like the same level as like France, obviously, because France is a, has a stunning array of cheeses. Um, mm. But like every single town in France has got its own cheese. It's amazing. Like France, France is cheese capital of the world. Um, but like in in England, we're very proud of our cheddars and our Stiltons and our Red Leicesters. Um, but at the same time, in when we were kids, there was horrible shite like cheese strings and baby Ugh, bells. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. <laughs> cheese strings are quite foul. They are the devil's cheese. They're, they're genuinely awful. I think they were advertised very, very heavily in the 90s as well. Every You couldn't watch a cartoon without having a cheese string advert break in the middle. And I think I wanted some and yeah. I got some and they would... So I, can't, I can remember being disappointed. I can't remember being as disappointed as I was by cheese strings. I think they were, um, yeah, they were, they were not, they were not good. I, I'm just trying to think of like the worst possible meal you could have from stuff in the nineties that we ate. So like Ugh. a glass of Sunny D with cheese strings and baby bell. I will not some... hear a bad word said against Sunny D. <laughs> so, Sunny D was delicious. Maybe some dairy I'm very sad that you can't get it. Yeah, Lunchables. Oh, horrible. They honestly looked no different from the kind of like fake plastic lunch items you'd get in like a child's playset kitchen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, they looked exactly like that and probably tasted the same as well. They just like... Yeah. The, the people who were putting out all this horrible food in the 90s just seemed to have insane marketing budgets. Like I don't know how they did it. 
it's yeah i just it's amazing it's, it's or were tv ads a lot cheaper back then maybe maybe but i don't know it's horrendous yeah, but well, we still haven't solved the mystery of the posh potato man. Has no, this... I'm giving up. I think maybe it was some kind of fever dream caused by eating too many cheese strings. Um, <laughs> but, uh, interesting factoid for you. Um, do you know why cheddar cheese is the most popular cheese? I don't, no. Um, so it's because during World War II, there was, um, because of rationing and economies and things like that, it was decided that cheddar cheese would be the only... Uh, it would be the only cheese made available to people, basically. Uh. Um, so places that would make a, a greater variety of different cheeses for, based around the country, their own different sort of like individual things, they'd then start making government cheddar cheese. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, so there was, I think it lasted until the mid-1950s was that the only cheese that could be made was cheddar, effectively. Blimey. Um, Did it have Churchill's jowly face on it? <laughs> Now that's a man who ate too much cheese. <laughs> yeah. He was tangy. He was tangy like a good cheddar. <laughs> oh, so uh, here we here we go. So a little factoid for you on this. In the southwest of England before the war, five hundred and fourteen farms were making a vast variety of cheddars. Um in nineteen seventy four, just thirty three farms were making cheddar, mostly of uniform taste and quality. So um so even like Wensleydale nearly disappeared because of government regulations and rationing. Wow. Um, and, but then it then sort of like it started growing again uh, over time. So now we do have some variety of cheeses around. Cool. Also, so, speaking of kind of processed crap food, in um, God's Own Country, they, they eat a lot of pot noodles which is quite nice to see. They do eat a lot of pot noodles. I was like, yes, pot noodle representing. Love, yeah. love a bit of pot noodle. Pot noodle is as misunderstood as a, food, as a food, I think. I think it's actually very, very good. and People don't appreciate how good it is. Pot noodle is great. Um, what flavour pot noodle did you used to go for when you ate pot noodles? I used to go for what the sort of, was it the orange sort of slightly spicy one? The, the pot uh, noodle the curry, equivalent of curry, the... Curry. Yeah. Yeah, the pot noodle equivalent of the nice and spicy knickknacks, although it was much better than those, because as we discussed previously, um, ribbon saucy knickknack is the best knickknack. What was the other one? There was three flavors of knickknacks. Oh, actually, I think this might have been a bit on um, my old previous podcast, the Sherman Report. But there was definitely some knickknack chat on that podcast, or maybe yeah. I'm just a knickknack obsessed lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've discussed them, but I remember listening to the Sherman Report with with, with you guys talking about it. Either that, or we've talked about knickknacks before outside. We probably of the have. But it yeah, comes so up th- quite a lot. There was nice and spicy, ribbon saucy, and then there was a third flavour because you used to get like the six packs. Weren't they like cheesy, cheesy cheese or something? Like they were yellow oh, and cheesy. God, yeah, they were like cheese flavoured, and they were the worst. And they also maybe had like, did they have like a scampy flavoured one? Oh, maybe. Maybe. Oh, I, yeah. I would have gone for that. right. Yeah, I think there was a scampy one. I am down with scampy. Like, if you get those on the bar snacks, you get the little scampy fries. Oh, the scampy fries, yeah, they're amazing. I love Scamp- those. Scampy in general is great as well. When you see scampy on a menu at a pub, you're like, you know, this is a good pub. It's got to be done. Do you reckon the pub in God's Own Country had scampy on the menu? 
I don't think they had any food on the menu, just disappointment and bitterness. <laughs> they had, uh, yeah. There's a really, really weird moment when the two of them go to the pub together. And while John is often in the toilet having sex with the young lad, Georgi is he's sitting there and there's an old man just like flicking his beer at him. And you're just like, why would an old man do that? Well, yeah, that, that was like the only moment of like active racism in the movie, I suppose. Yeah. Um, is that the people in the pub do not like the fact that there's a Romanian guy coming in. Um, yeah. Which is, yeah, which is unfortunately a an issue in in those very old-fashioned establishments like that, where they're, certainly where is. they're based around conservatism and localism. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that's the closest it gets to, like, active aggression in the film. Yeah, towards I really outsiders. I thought that he was going to get beaten up while John was in the toilet, and that was going to it was going to then turn into a kind of yeah a big racism prejudice problem, but it it didn't do that because that wasn't the point of it. Yeah, yeah. So instead, he he is nasty to the bloke, and then he's like, "You've got to leave before I call the police because I can't have you upsetting my racist regulars." <laughs> yeah. They're the only ones buying the scampi fries. Okay, yeah. you know we've got to shift them somehow. The, the only other flavour of crisp we have is disappointment flavour, ready salted. <laughs> I, I don't mind a good ready salted every now and then. You can have it every every time, but sometimes it's refreshing. Sometimes you just need the carbohydrate and salt. But yeah, like if you're talking like just purely salted crisps, then like it's hard to look past the the excellence of kettle chips, though. Yeah. Kettle chips are appropriately priced for what they are because they're a cut above regular crisps, but they're not like they're not the king's crisps, but they're they're princely. They're excellent. Have you ever made crisps at home? No, I have not. I I guess is it that difficult? Would you just do you just chuck them in a frying pan? Yeah, pretty much. Oh. It's, yeah, it's it's always mediocre. Just to warn you. Yeah, but uh, but you get a sense of satisfaction where you're like, oh, I made crisps. Maybe not the best use of, of my time. Not the best use of your time, but if you want that sense of satisfaction of having done something and then never feel like doing it ever again, then uh, it's something for a lazy Sunday afternoon. Huh. Kind of like watching a film like Table 19. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what else do we need to say about God's Own Country? It's Yeah, I put it that it's so much about yeah trying to trying to deal with things and trying to express yourself and especially about men trying to deal with problems and to express themselves as well as we all know is kind of a a problem with masculinity is men not knowing how to express themselves and then that manifesting itself in ways that cause you know cause harm and cause prejudice to others and i think it was it was hinting at that and dealing dealing with it while still maintaining it really being a a romance between two men that worked out so it managed to be uplifting while still sowing all those seeds but yeah at the end the final scene when he goes to the the scottish potato industrial farm to get him back and they kind of have a bit of a very very clipped conversation and then Georgi starts walking away and then he runs up and he's like i'm trying to say this and he 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 genuinely says i'm trying and you like you can feel him trying so hard to express what he's feeling and not necessarily being able to do it um, and he doesn't say he doesn't say I love you, but he says I want us to be together, and that's almost more powerful in a way, I think. And that scene was really, really arresting. It was a really good climactic scene, and that was where the what little dialogue there was really, really worked and did what it needed to do. 
Yeah, that final scene is fantastic. It's so well done. And like you're on tender hooks because you can see that it's so close to not working and it's so close to like falling apart. And you're like, no, after this really difficult journey, you need that success. You need that happiness at the end, that bright spark of a potential future. And it it's like, oh, go on then. We'll give it to you. Yeah. And it, like, it keeps it's you like... on the edge all the way up to the end. It's so well done. It's great. Yeah. And it, it could easily have gone down the tragic route where Kyogi's just like, no, I'm not coming back, go away. And then John just walks off into the sunset and that's it. Like it could have done that and it still would have been a really, really good and effective film. But yeah, it would have lost the uplifting quality of, you know, ultimately saying that, you know, romance and love and companionship is how you deal with the the difficulties of life and how you find a way to express yourself and to deal with the pain of the Yorkshire Moors. Yeah, and and also like allowing that variety and that vibrancy of life to then filter through to all aspects of life because i mean like you can see at the time when georgie's at the farm the um the success that they're having in comparison to how it was before and like you do get that sense that if they are both there together he alone wasn't able to take on the responsibilities of running the farm from his father but with someone else there with him they could actually turn it into something successful and there's like those little hints at that all the way through the film yeah and yeah and you know that Georgi is a really good farmer as well he's like really tender with the lambs there's a really really cute moment where he's like bottle feeding the lamb and it's it's great and you want it to work you really you're really really rooting for it to work and for them to come together but you you don't blame John for the things that he does and the way that he acts and the way he's so kind of stony-faced and ashen and grumpy that eventually when it's about 45 minutes into the movie he finally cracks a smile and a laugh and you're like yes finally I knew you had it in you yes yeah exactly um and and one thing I think you know stepping into this movie what they should do is they should start making sheep's cheese yeah and like yeah and like selling that and be like exotic sheep's cheese because like that's the kind of stuff that hipsters go for and i don't know if you've ever have you ever had sheep's cheese i think i've had it once or twice yeah, yeah. it's really really in nice fact, on the sherman report when we talked about cheese rob sherman said that his favorite cheese was a sheep's cheese and i was like oh yeah whatever sheep's cheese you cheese hipster but it is actually very nice <laughs> it's really really tasty my one of my favorite cheeses um is this regional french cheese uh called fontadam and uh, that is a blend of goats, sheep's, and cow's milk mm. um, to create this really creamy uh, soft cheese that often comes wrapped in like a vine leaf. And nice. it's really, really good. And I, you can get it in, it's like a regional thing for like the west of France, and it's super delicious. Um, and yeah, so like there is money to be made there with their unique cheese. Ship it down to Shoreditch, and the hipsters will spend lots of money on it. Yeah, definitely. But that was a good little moment as well when Georgi comes to the farm and he's like, um, "Yeah, how are you doing with the like milking?" And they're like, "Oh, they, you know, we don't milk them; they're bulls or whatever." And he's like, "No, I mean the sheep." And they're like, "We don't milk the sheep, but go go ahead if you want to." It's kind of a nice thing of illustrating his sort of subtle difference between him and them, which actually sets him apart as being different, but also being a good farmer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It it, it works really well. Everything in this movie is meticulous. Um, and that's really nice to see. Um, so it's, yeah, even it like 
on face value, this might not seem like the most interesting movie. And like you might think, oh, okay, gay romance movie. But there's so much going on here that it steps far above what your expectations would be just on face value. Yeah, definitely. It, it surpassed all my expectations for sure. It was, yeah, I, it was, it was what I expected, but I didn't expect it to be as arresting and as, as bleak and as real and as brutal as it was. Actually, I didn't expect to be affected by it as much as I was. It was good. Yeah, it was. It was great. Really enjoyed it a lot. How uh, how can we rate this? Let's see. Is there anything else we need to say? Do we have any trivia? Um, no, only that um, the, the the character of Geordie was inspired by an actual person that the director met. Oh, right. Um, talking about his experiences and things like that, which I thought was quite interesting. And that they made uh, the two leads sort of do lots of farming in advance of the movie being made to get them into it. <coughs> Bless you. Cheers. I'm uh, still on the sniffs and the sneezes, I'm afraid. I think I've got, like, sinusitis or something. Oh, no. It's all up. It's all, yeah, my nose. So apologies if my voice is a little bit downbeat this week. Oh, that's quite all right. I have not noticed anything. Yeah. Uh, the um, the lady who played the Nan, I realised I recognised her as the um, the nurse, what's the name, in Harry Potter the, oh um, right okay the yeah. doctor yeah she's in a bunch of the harry potters and she's been in a bunch of other stuff on tv i'm just looking at her thing now she's in last tango in halifax did you ever see that i never saw it but i've heard of it claire was a big fan it's something that used to come on on i think it was a sunday night show it was almost like a soap opera set in in halifax but it was, it was very well done it had a really good cast but other than that it seemed like all of the actors were quite were quite young beginning of their careers and i hope they all go on to like really really good things because they were all really really good especially the guy who played john um his kind of his facial expressions and his ways of outwardly expressing emotions like when he laughs and when he cries and all these things that he's kind of keeping in um it's it's he, he does it really really well he's very very good at providing that that emotional depth i'd say so i really hope that he has a, a great career ahead of him yeah, because he's been in a few things in the last few years, um, but like, it's. Re- I think this is going to be a real breakout performance for him, I suppose. Um, and so, yeah, I'm looking forward to to seeing what he in particular is going to do next. Yeah. Um, so, shall we move on to rating? Yeah, sure. How how much cheese? How much sheep is in your cheese? <laughs> how much sheep is in my cheese um i'm gonna go for 17 sheep in my cheese wow that's a that's a a lot of sheep in your cheese i'm actually gonna go for the exact same 17 oh, okay, that's what i was thinking all along it's yeah it's a very very high rating very very well deserved um yeah the only thing keeping it from the top top spot is the the kind of bleakness of the subject matter i guess but that's that's just because of it is what it is but no it's a really really yeah. well done film I think is very very interesting and really refreshing. And as um, the point we made last, the the reason we ended up watching this was because a friend of the podcast Adam Molesky said to sent it to me as a kind of example of a good British romance film and a contemporary one as well. And it really really ticked all those boxes as well. After we made the po- the point on last week's episode about British romances, obviously seeming kind of drab. 
but we were comparing 90s stuff obviously I can't believe that last week we actually talked about a film from the 90s and didn't talk about knickknacks at all and this week we spent the whole time talking about crisps <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true um yeah we got our we got our discussions around the wrong way yeah um, that's what we do that's our thing <laughs> yeah but it's a, it's a very very good film i think if you're a little bit squeamish you might end up fast forwarding through some of the farming parts some of the more gruesome aspects and some of the sex is a little bit graphic but it's it's very very realistic so i think you know definitely do engage with that and enjoy it but yeah make sure that you're in a you're in the mood for it as well that's the thing you you definitely have to be in the mood for this kind of film yeah it's not the kind of thing that you can just sit down and turn on you've got to be in the right frame of mind for a thinky movie i guess is the best way to describe it it is a thinky um, movie yeah you have to but you not, have to Im- invest yourself in it yeah you have to pay attention and you it's really really worth paying attention to all the subtle little things and thinking about every scene and being like okay why is that there but at the same time you can just kind of sit and let it wash over you rather than it being a thinky movie in the same way as you know some Darren Aronofsky film is the thinking movie where he really, really wants you to think about the symbolism of this now, guys. Hey, dead babies, how about that, huh? Here's some <laughs> here's some loud Tchaikovsky. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Um yeah, it's 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 much it's it's got the correct level of subtlety for a movie where you have to think about the themes. Yeah. Um it's, it's thinky in the best way. Yes, yeah. Thinky in the brain. <laughs> Speaking of things from the nineties, yeah, I know. I always hated Pinky in the Brain. I Did found you it like creepy and strange? I thought it was kind of like it was never as good as Mister Peabody and Sherman. Did you like Animaniacs in general, though? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Always, always a good laugh. Yeah, w- weird but good. Which yeah, is the right kind of thing for kids. Those kind of things can make such a big impact on children, I suppose. Definitely, yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't see a Dairy Lee Lunchable without having to run home and just curl up, curl up in bed. <laughs> yeah, uh, things impact on kids. Uh, make sure it's the right kind of impact. Make sure it's the weird cartoon impact, not the disgusting food impact. Yeah, cartoons are fine. Any kind of cartoons... You know, I was, um, I think I used to watch Ren and Stimpy and we had a Ren and Stimpy game on the Mega Drive and my mum really, really hated it. She was not oh, a fan of that. That Ren and Stimpy game was terrible, man. I remember that. It was really difficult. It was well. awful. It was like, yeah, it, it was one of those deliberately difficult games that was around in like the 2D platformer era where it's like, we can't make an interesting game. So let's just make it really hard so the kids can never beat it yeah we can't make loads and loads of levels because we can't be asked to give you actually like good gameplay time for your money in terms of an actual like lots of different things to get through so we'll just make sure that most of your time is spent playing the same bit over and over and over again just keep spamming enemies at them until they die yeah and where the, the difficulty derives from the the controls and the gameplay rather than from an actual genuinely interesting challenge yeah yeah yeah, man. I'm I'm glad that those kind of games no longer exist because now the cash grab is making a mobile game. Yeah. So it's licensed mobile games instead of licensed actual games because they're much less effort for these companies. 
yeah so this keep is them out of our games in general and you'll end up paying you know 79p for a mobile game maybe or it's free and they're in-app purchases yeah horrible horrible in-app purchases to try yeah. and get people hooked into gambling yeah that's good for kids too right that that's great for kids um nothing is better for children than getting them hooked into skinner box mechanics uh where they're spending lots of money at an early age um there's there's definitely not cases where these loot box mechanics have been causing massive problems for children uh that definitely hasn't been happening and the people that have been introducing these things to children via video games and to adults with gambling problems via video games uh, are definitely not horrible immoral pieces of shit it's just the market man you know they're entrepreneurs the market's going to do what the market's going to do right i mean they're making money off it it doesn't matter if that money is coming from gambling addicts that they're specifically targeting that's just the way it works you know these people can't be held accountable for their actions of ruining people's lives for a fucking video game if we don't allow people to ruin people's lives for money we'll all just end up like eating sheep's cheese (laughs) exactly like what what would we do if we didn't have loot boxes in video games? Make money the way video games have always made money? What, by like actually making people just buy a game up front and then that's it? Yeah. What I am mean, I, an animal? That, that's disgusting. That's so backdated, like outdated as, a, as an idea. Um, we needed to add loot boxes to our Star Wars based game because everybody knows that no one knows what Star Wars is. So that that game would not sell by the bucket load if we just made a good game. We have to introduce these things to make loads of money. Yeah, man. What's what's uh, what's Star Wars? What yeah, what is a Star Wars? Um we bought this we bought the rights to make like games out of this property, not really, you know, on a whim. We thought, you know what, this might be big, but we don't know. Um we yeah. didn't know what this movie franchise was um before we bought it. Um Yeah. I'd never heard of a Star War. <laughs> That's the voice um, of a man who runs a games company. That that is the voice of um, EA CEO. <laughs> EA um, Games. That's his name. Yeah, his name is EA, EA Games. <laughs> <laughs> Edwin Arnold Games. Edwin Arnold Games is the person who made the company Electronic Arts, but then they realised that they needed to shorten it to EA Games um, after yeah. that. Because um, people yeah, can't read words anymore. They can't. Um, uh, yeah, EA can can fuck off with all of their loot, <laughs> loot box bullshit. Um, I'm sick of them. I'm sick of loot boxes in games. More um, like electronic farts, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> but like, they're all at it. Um, Activision's awful, awful for it. Uh, EA's awful for it. Um, they These companies are a disgrace for trying to implement these strategies into games where people have already spent like... Fifty pounds, sixty dollars on them to actually buy them in the first place. Yeah, and then and it's then disgraceful. they're and then they're implementing strategies within their games to get gambling addicts hooked on spending extra money in them, and th- and that's what it is. That's what they're targeting. It's disgraceful. They need to stop it. Um, because I'm not buying a game with loot box mechanics in if it or if I'm already buying it up front. I'm just not going to do it. And I think there's lots of other people that are the same. Um, yeah, it's exploitative. If that's how you're making your money, then you need to look at a different way of making your money because it's not cool. Yeah, so get in the bin. Um, <laughs> welcome to Rob Gets Angry About Video Games cast. Hey, we could, um, we could do that. That could be a thing. <laughs> Dude, I could do that all day. We could um, do that. And then you, 
So every time you just rant about whatever you want to rant, and then I've gone back and played a really difficult game from the 90s, and I rant about how difficult it is. <laughs> this has got this is a winning structure right here. Um, Start with Ren and Stimpy, and then we can do the Jurassic Park game as well. Oh, mate. There, there was like four or five Jurassic Park games, wasn't there? And yeah. they, they were either all really good or really shit. There was no middle ground with them. We had one on the Mega Drive. It was 2D and it was bloody impossible. And it was full of like really weird orange velociraptors and terrible graphics. Yeah, that one was awful. But the one on the Nintendo Entertainment System was amazing. It was a little top-down game. And I, yeah. I think I've shared the music with you. It's got the best music from any game of that era. It's. I think. I think uh, this is a potential show notes option. Better than um, Ducktales. Better than Ducktales. The no, moon I mean level the, of the moon from the Ducktales. Moon level of Ducktales is one of the all-time greatest pieces of music ever made. But uh, Jurassic Park NES um, is is the ultimate of that era. Um, I will send. I'll send you a link to it, Paddy. You can put it in the show notes. Yeah, but it's it's great. Please do best best stuff in the world. Um. Anyway, I will stop my rambling. <laughs> <laughs> While um, I was looking up Hedgehog Crisps, I found that in the the, the Shropshire Star, um, a news item about it that says Hedgehog Crisps Welsh Pool inventor dies aged seventy four. Oh, this no. was this was um, about a year ago, February last year. So the inventor of Hedgehog Crisps, who taught in schools across the region, has died peacefully aged seventy four. So, Philip Lewis from Welshpool, originally came up with the unlikely crisp flavour as a joke, inspired by an old gypsy story of baked hedgehogs. There you go. That is amazing, though. Hedgehogs are cute. I'd like to get one as a pet. Hedgehogs are awesome. Yeah. Um, Although I think they are nocturnal, so they suffer from the same problem as hamsters. Yeah. But, uh, hey, at least they sort of, like, they, they form their own ball rather than having a little wheel. I'll just roll up this is ball. true. That's not quite as noisy. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, I have my movie ready for next for next yes. episode. What um, are we watching next? So it's been a while since we went back in time a little bit further. Um, and it's also been a while since we watched an Audrey Hepburn movie. Oh, okay. Um, so we will be watching Charade from 1965. Ah, nice. One of which you have made a video game. Uh, music video. I should say, not a video game, although that would be good too. There's a music video for Palomino Club that you made using cuts of this film, which yes, is very, very yeah. cool. Yeah, I did, which was really good fun. I think it was the one that came out the best out of the three I made as well. Yeah. Um, it was a good one. Um, They're all yeah, really so, good, though. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to rewatching it. Cool. That's a very, very good choice. I'm, yeah, it's, be, it's definitely a, a good time to go back in time, having done a, a 2017 film. Yes, exactly. Cool. The only other thing I have to share with you is is farming related, which is a, a headline in the news this week, which says, cow escapes on way to slaughterhouse, smashes through metal fence, breaks arm of mine trying to catch her, then swims to safety on island in lake. Oh my God, I love it. So this cow hope... is everyone's hero. That cow, I mean, if there was an election held tomorrow and that cow was running against Theresa May, I know where my my vote was going. The cow would definitely win. It could win an election win. against anyone. Yeah. It's like, so, so sorry, a... Corbyn, but this cow has been proved to be effective. Yeah. Her her policy was don't get killed in a slaughterhouse and break some douchebag's arm. Yeah. It's and... also 
willing to say that Brexit is a bad idea rather than being like, oh, yeah, we should do it. Yeah. Yeah, because the other cows on the way were like, oh, the slaughterhouse is a good idea. Or they were like, oh, well, I didn't vote for the slaughterhouse, but, you know, it's the will of the people. So we'll have to go with it. Whereas this cow was like, no, no slaughterhouse. We'll forge our own path. Apparently now the cow lives on the island and they've just let it live there because it's livid and it's attacking anyone who tries to get to take it. So it escaped on its way to the slaughterhouse and is now living peacefully on this island. That's great. And like, I mean, that, that, if, if we can't learn lessons from this cow about being aggressive to people we don't like to be left alone then I don't know what we can learn. <laughs> yeah, the moral of the story is be like the cow. Isolate yourself on an island <laughs> and see how you get on. Yeah, if you don't like people, break their arms and go and live alone and attack when we'll, um, who comes near you. We'll check in with the cow next week, see how it's getting on. Yeah. We'll give you a cow update. We will indeed. <laughs> Cool. Well, that's uh, that's going to do it for us. So, as always, if you have if you want to talk about films or anything else that we that we've discussed, if you have a favourite flavour of crisps that isn't hedgehog, you know, drop us an email at bigboysdon'tcrypodcast at gmail dot com. Drop us a tweet at bigboysdon'tpod. Always love to hear from you. Yeah, and if if anyone else out there remembers hedgehog flavoured crisps, please let me know. Yeah, like so that you I know you're not hallucinating. Not <laughs> yeah. It's not just me and the guy who invented them that remember them, surely. Yeah. You've got you to gotta do some work to convince me that it isn't fake news. I'll build a time machine. I'll go back and buy some hedgehog-flavoured crisps and, and bring yep. them back. That's definitely the best use of a time machine. I mean, I can't think of any possible better use of it. No, nah, be everything else is fine. Yeah. There's nothing else in history that needs needs addressing. But people need to remember hedgehog-flavoured crisps. <laughs> Yep, priority number one. <laughs> uh, well, thanks very much for listening. We do really appreciate it. And as always, if you if you like what we do, please leave us a review. You know, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, wherever you get your podcast, any place you can review it. Tell people because you know we want everyone to know about hedgehog flavored crisps. It's a, it's an important part of our mission. It's an important part of society. Get yeah. on it, guys, please. Yeah. Please do. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about Sherrod. All right. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Bye.